Well, I've never heard that um, song before today, but I certainly agree with its theology. I believe whosoever will may come means that whosoever will may come. I don't think God's trying to make it difficult or complicated. Plain sense makes common sense choose no other sense or else it'll be nonsense, right? That's the way it should be. <clears throat> Zechariah 1, please, uh, again. And uh, uh, I promise you that before the end of the week, we will get out of Zechariah chapter 1. But uh, there's so much in here that um, it's hard just to skim over it. So I'd like to read from verse 2 uh, down to verse 4. And so Zechariah 1, verse 2, it says, The Lord hath been sore displeased with your fathers. Therefore say thou unto them, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Turn ye unto me, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will turn unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. Be ye not as your fathers, unto whom the former prophets have cried, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Turn ye now from your evil ways and from your evil doings, but they did not hear nor hearken unto me, saith the Lord. As we consider this uh, book of Zechariah, so much of it is to do with the rebuilding of the temple. And the burden of Zechariah is simply this, that there's no point rebuilding the temple if the hearts of the people are the same as their father's hearts were. You see, the reason the temple had been destroyed in the first place and the people had been taken into Babylonian captivity was they were idolaters, they were disobedient to the Word of God, they weren't walking the way God intended them. And so what he's saying right at the beginning of his message, no point encouraging you to build the temple unless your hearts fundamentally change. Right? And so when he says to them, and three times he mentions this phrase, turn ye. Turn ye unto me, verse 3, and he says, says the Lord of hosts, and I will turn to you. Verse 4, he says, turn ye now. And the idea of turning means that they were going in the wrong direction. Already they're back in the land and already they're going in the wrong direction. And God says, turn from that direction into the right direction. Face me and obey me. We call that repentance, don't we? Do you know that much of the ministry of the New Testament concerning repentance is addressed to Christians? In Revelation chapters 2 and 3, the Lord Jesus, in his last words to the church, addresses seven assemblies in Asia Minor. Five out of seven, he calls them to repentance. That's 72%. Now, let me ask you a question. I don't know how many assemblies there are in California, but if five out of seven assemblies in Asia Minor needed repentance, how many in California needs to, need to repent, do you suspect? Quite a number, would you think? Because the heart of man doesn't change from age to age, does it? And yet the interesting thing is that he, he, as he addresses them, and he tells them that they, they need to turn to God, and he gives them a promise. If you will turn to me, I will turn to you. It's a lovely promise, isn't it? But they had to make the first move. 
God was waiting, God was willing to turn to them again and bless them, but they first had to move and turn to him because they're the ones that had gone astray. I think that many of our assemblies need to repent. I know that's not a popular message. I've never really been interested in popularity. I'm interested in truth. And, and let me just be honest about this. Uh, I, I have a friend, he's a, an evangelist in England, and he was having gospel meetings in a, an assembly, and for two weeks he labored in the gospel. And there were a lot of unbelievers came out night after night, but no response. Nobody accepted Christ. So at the end of two weeks, he asked all the people who were not Christians, who knew they weren't saved, to leave, and those that were Christians to stay behind. And then he went to the back door and he locked it and he put the key in his pocket. And he says, nobody leaves until we find out why there's been no blessing in this series of gospel meetings. That takes a lot of courage, doesn't it? <laughs> and so there was an awkward silence. You could imagine that, couldn't you? And then all of a sudden a little boy gets up and he confesses some minor thing that he had done wrong. The dam broke with that little boy and his honesty. A lot of people who had been squabbling for years, somebody offended me 25 years ago, and every time I look at them, I'm mad at them, right? That kind of attitude. A lot of people just decided it's, it's less time to deal with this. And so nobody left until every issue in that assembly was dealt with. Then he said, okay, we'll have an extra week of gospel meetings. 100 people received Jesus Christ as their personal savior. Now, all I'm asking this morning is a very simple question. What about your assembly? Are there issues under the surface that are hindering the blessing of God? Maybe there's somebody at this conference and you, you, they offended you. They don't even know they did it. But 25 years ago, they looked at you the wrong way and you're bent out of shape about it to this very day. Don't leave this amphitheater until you've gone to that person and salted it out. Listen, life's too short to carry grudges. Let's deal with sin. Let's be honest with God. Maybe there's some person here, and you know that you're going in the wrong direction. I'm not saying you're not a Christian. You, you, you know the Lord, but, but you've been making wrong choices. Maybe wrong relationships. Maybe wrong friendships. Maybe you've been neglecting the Word of God, and your direction is going the wrong way. God is saying to you this morning, turn back to me and I'll turn to you. Uh, you see, I, I can give you a New Testament equivalent. Turn to James chapter 4 for a moment <clears throat> because, uh, again, the heart of man doesn't change. And so we see a very much a parallel between Old Testament and New Testament. James 4 verse 8, he says, draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. And then he says this, notice this, Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. You notice what he's saying? He says, draw near. There's a promise. If you'll draw near to God, it says he will draw near to you. Can I ask you, are you enjoying the intimacy with God that you once did? You know what it's like. You first get saved and everything's wonderful and you've got this tremendous, joyful relationship with the Lord. But you make wrong choices and all of a sudden it's just not the same. God says, look, if you will get honest 
That's all God wants is just honesty in his presence. And say, Lord, you know, I, I've, I've sinned. I've done things that I ought not to have done. I've been involved in relationships I ought not to. I've neglected the word of God. I've, I, I've spent my, my time in trivialities and nonsense. And, and I just want to get real with you. God says, if you draw near to me, he says, I will draw near to you. You know, that whole section, we won't take the time to go there, but, but it, it, he, twice he talks about humbling yourselves. See, just like uh, Justin said last night, pride keeps you from the gospel. Pride also keeps you from a real living relationship with God. If you're not honest about your sin and real, God wants reality. That's the biggest problem people have with Christianity is they see a bunch of hypocrites. And really it is that we're just not being real. God wants reality. And so he says, turn. And he promises that he will turn to them. And he says, when should you do this? He says, turn ye now. Not even before the meeting ends. Now is the time to get right with God, isn't it? And get real. So corporately as assemblies, there's a time to put things right. Individually, maybe some backslider here. It's time to get things right. There's no point whatsoever in rebuilding the house of God in Zechariah's day unless their hearts are changed. Because the temple will have to be destroyed again. See, God is interested in reality, isn't he? In the inward parts. And so that's, that's a very important section. Now, again, we're going to have to move a little bit faster here. But at least verse 5 and 6 tells us that God's word does take effect. You see, he says that, that um, his words that he commanded his servants, the prophets, to speak, uh, they did come to pass. Men like Jeremiah and Ezekiel, who prophesied, look, unless you repent, judgment is imminent. And they didn't listen. They didn't take God's word seriously. And, and so God's word took effect. I was speaking in an assembly in India. It's the oldest assembly in Kerala. It's been in existence since 1899 started by an English missionary, E.H. Noel. And um, they were, I think, kind of prideful about their history. And so I spoke to them about Ephesus. I said, Ephesus had a great history. Apostle Paul spent more time there than any other assembly, three years. Apostle John spent time there. Timothy spent time there. And I said, where's Ephesus now? There's no assembly in Ephesus gone. Why? Well, they left their first love and they did not repent. And God says, and this is a warning to assemblies in California, unless you repent, he says, I will remove your lampstand. That's the bottom line. This is serious stuff. We're not playing games here today. There's a need to get real and get right with God. And we need to do it because, let's be honest, we're in days of decline and departure. And I don't know about you, but I read about the glory days of the past, and I want to experience that in my lifetime. I don't want to just get my kicks from reading church history. I want to be in now seeing God work in a mighty way amongst us. But we've got to get real. We've got to get honest. And so 
um, Lord Jesus said the very same thing. He that has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What he's saying here is that you didn't listen to the prophets. Your fathers heard godly men like Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and they preached with conviction and power, and your fathers didn't listen, so God's word took effect. God's word always takes effect. You either respond to it, and it will take effect immediately in your life, bringing great blessing, or God's word will take effect if you ignore it. Because what a man sows, what does the Bible say? That shall he also reap. So one way or another, God's word is going to take effect in your life, either in blessing or in judgment. Now again, we're not saying you lose your salvation because we believe in the security of the believer. But the Corinthians, saints of God, many of them were weak and sickly. And some of them were asleep. And it's not like some, some of you guys in the meetings. I'm not saying that they were sleeping through the message. They were dead. God took them home. Because they weren't serious about obedience. And so this is serious, and we need to do that. Now let's look at chapter 3. Now, we want to look at uh, one of these night visions. We said that there's a series of eight night visions that are given to this man, Zechariah, and they're given to him in one night. And uh, chronologically, this is night vision number four uh, out of the eight. So it's kind of the uh, almost the middle here, four out of eight. And uh, we, we want to look today and tomorrow at, at, at vision four and vision five. And these visions, they're different to the other visions in the sense that the other visions were generally designed to encourage the people of God in a general sense that God was about to work on their behalf again. But this vision, vision 4, and then the next chapter, vision 5, are specifically designed to encourage the leadership. Joshua the high priest, in chapter 3, in Zerubbabel, the governor, in chapter 4. And, and there's a simple principle here, and I think it is an important one, and that is this, that leaders need encouraging too. They need encouragement. I mean, we always look to them to encourage us, but who's going to encourage them? Well, God is going to encourage them through these visions, right? He wants to encourage those that are in leadership. And we need to be thinking about encouraging those that are in leadership. It's a tough job. I think about oversight these days. And I think about men that maybe 20 years ago were recognized as elders. And they're having to deal with things today that were unheard of 20 years ago. I don't know if you've heard, but there's an issue in the assemblies now. People are teaching polygamy. And assembly elders are having to deal with... Now, when you talk about polygamy, uh, you know, if, anytime you'd ever discuss that with somebody has gone to Africa... And, and as missionaries, and they'd ask you, well, you know, how do we deal with that? Well, some prominent people in assemblies are now advocating polygamy is legit. Now, when elders got recognized as 20 years ago, they, they're probably thinking, I didn't sign up for this. Right? They, we need to pray for these men. I'll tell you, this is a messed up world. And because we're living in this messed up world, we're starting to imbibe some of the messed up philosophies. If we just stick to the Word of God, we would never imbibe these messed up philosophies. But we, we're starting to embrace that. And so elders are having to deal with stuff that they never dreamed about. And so they need encouragement. By the way, they need your prayers. You pray for your elders? We need to be praying for those men in oversight. 
I'll say it's not an easy task today uh, to look at, you know, sheep. Uh, so was it somebody, was it Rex, talked about sheep being dumb and smelly? Was it something like that? I think it was something like that. Sheep are, are, are awkward. They're difficult to deal with. I know because my, my brother-in-law is a sheep farmer in the west of Ireland. And I've been over there and he sent me to count the sheep. And uh, it would be easy to do if they'd keep still. <laughs> but they keep moving. And they all look the same. And it's just not easy. But they do smell, I can tell you that. I've been close enough to them to know that. And uh, they don't have good cleanse, cleanse, cleansely habits. So, so, so again, encouragement for the leadership. So um, chapter 3 and 4 are designed to do that. Now this one is Joshua the high priest. And it's really interesting because you look at it, it says, verse 1, it says, He showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. So let's just think about the high priest for a minute. First of all, the high priest... As in all priestly functions, priests were representative. In other words, when the high priest went into the presence of God, he didn't just go on his own behalf, but he went as a representative of the people. That's why, by the way, that when we stand up and pray, we pray representatively, not individually. In a corporate setting. In other words, when I pray, uh, at the end of this meeting, I'm going to pray, we, us, and our, not I, me, and my. Because I'm not praying just for me. I'm praying on behalf of all of us. And I hope you're in agreement with what I'm praying and you'll say, Amen. And so we all prayed. Right? That's the idea. Really a simple idea. But it's, it's the idea we're representative as priests. I remember in the early days I was preaching a sermon and I was so convicted by my own message that in closing in prayer it was too much I, me, my, and myself. And, and an older brother just about nailed me to the wall. And he, uh, he said to me, do you think you were the only person convicted this morning? Why did you pray for yourself? Why didn't pray for all of us? We were all convicted. And it was a lesson learned. Uh, by the way, and, and I, I don't want to be controversial, but I want to just tell you the truth, that I believe that the assembly should not be divided for the prayer meeting. Because, you know, people, the reason they divide up is because of expediency. They'll say, oh, we get more people praying. That's nonsense. You can't have more than all. <laughs> when you stand up and pray, if everybody's praying with you, the whole assembly is praying. And every time you go into the presence of God, the whole assembly goes with you and presents your petitions before God. So, I'm sorry, First Timothy 2a, I will that the males pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Okay, that's the way it should be. And I see departure, I see change in those areas today. And the reason is we're not thinking biblically. And we need to be thinking biblically. So the high priest is representative and he represents the nation. And the problem is the high priest Joshua has spent most of his life in Babylon. And he's dirty. He's defiled because he was raised in Babylon. And so Satan is as the high priest comes into the presence of God, as he draws near, Satan then draws near and begins to say, God, you're not going to listen to that guy, are you? He's a dirty man. How could you possibly listen to a dirty man? This priesthood thing's not going to work. These guys are dirty. See, Satan is what in the Bible? He is the accuser of the brethren. 
don't know if he's ever done it to you, but many times at the Lord's Supper, you know, you might want to get up and, and say something as a, as a brother, and, 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 and the Satan comes along and says, I know some stuff about you. Why would you want to do that? You see, and, and that's what he loves to bring the dirt up, doesn't he? It's amazing. God says your sins and iniquities, I will remember them no more. That's part of the Lord's Supper, isn't it? When we take the communion cup, it's the new covenant in his blood. And what does the new covenant say? It says your sins and iniquities, I will remember no more. But Satan don't want you to forget them. God doesn't remember them, but Satan doesn't want you to forget them. And he says, what, what, what right do you have to preach? I know stuff about you. And, and so he accuses. It's interesting, too, though, that he only does it when Joshua draws near. You see, if you're not in an intimate relationship with God and you're not drawing near, in other words, you're kind of a, a, a what you say, a lukewarm, half-hearted Christian, Satan doesn't have to bother with you because you're so ineffective anyway. You're doing no good. But the minute you get real, maybe listening this morning, you decide you're going to make that turn back to the Lord and get serious. I'll tell you, the minute you get serious, I'll tell you, Satan will get serious. See, because you're, you're a threat then to his kingdom when you're a serious believer. And so you suddenly come on his radar screen. Remember that? Uh, the seven sons of Sceva in Acts chapter 19? Uh, Jewish exorcists. And what did they say? Paul we know and Jesus we know, but who are you? You see, the demons know who are serious about the things of God. And they, they, they've got your, your, you're on their screen. You see, you're, you're, you're a threat to them. So this, this high priest, um, he is drawing near and Satan is there to resist him. Interestingly, Satan's the adversary, uh, ad- adversary, and he's there in an, in an adversary way. He's there to resist or oppose him. And notice what it says in verse 2. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan. Even the Lord that has chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? Isn't that beautiful language? We find that in the book of Jude, don't we? about plucking people as brands out of the fire. See, every one of us in this auditorium today, or this whatever it is, amphitheater, that are truly saved, God in his grace has plucked us as brands out of the fire. Because we we already heard last night, the wrath of God was abiding on us. We were so close, we could almost smell the flames, right? We were on our way to eternal fire. But God has plucked us as brands from the burning. Isn't it wonderful? to be rescued by the Lord Jesus and to be saved from an eternity in hell. What a tremendous... We should be the most grateful people on the planet. Oh, what a tremendous thing to be saved from hell. And so, so uh, God rebukes Satan. The Lord rebuke thee, he says. The Lord rebuke thee. God has chosen Jerusalem. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? And then it says that Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. The English don't really bring out the fullness of this. It literally is saying that the priest is clothed with garments that are excrement covered. And remember the priest's garments. The high priest's garments were garments of glory and beauty. But because of his sin and defilement, 
He's standing in the presence of God, and you get the stench of human excrement. It's amazing, really, isn't it? The Bible is very clear that that's, that's how we, we were in our unsaved state. Look at Isaiah 64, 6. I really enjoyed uh, Justin's testimony last night. It's very similar to my own in many ways. Uh, my wife, by the way, was a very devout Roman Catholic. Uh, she was planning uh, to be a nun, a missionary nun to Peru. And uh, uh, I used to say to her, uh, because uh, I was, uh, the first day I met her, I said, I'm going to marry that girl. I was absolutely smitten by her. I thought she was the most beautiful thing on two legs I'd ever witnessed or seen. And, um, and yet she was such a, a, a devout person in her Catholic days. I used to say she was as holy as a tea strainer. <laughs> you know, she, I mean, she really, she went to mass, not just on a Sunday, she went every day. I mean, she was the real deal in terms of Catholicism, but she heard a man preach one day in an evangelical church, and he preached on Isaiah 64, 6. Let me just read it to you, Isaiah 64, 6. It says, We are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. We all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. All our righteousnesses, all our righteous acts are like filthy rags before a holy God. That's the way we were. Even the, even the good things we did were like bringing, waving filthy rags before God. We were dirty, we were filthy, we were vile. We needed to be cleaned up. My wife heard that. She became so convicted because she thought she was building up a treasure of merit that was going to be in her favor on Judgment Day. And when she realized her treasure of merit was a bunch of filthy rags, she was absolutely smitten. And praise the Lord, received Christ as her Savior. So, um, we, we see this constantly, this reference to the the dirty garments that once marked us. If you remember, even back in the Garden of Eden, and when Adam and Eve had sinned, and they were cast out of the garden, and, and they were aware of their nakedness and shame, and they wanted to clothe themselves. And they clothed themselves with fig leaves. Remember that? And it speaks of, uh, uh, well, there's no blood there, is there, for a start? And, and it speaks of human effort, our own effort to, to cover up our vileness and our sin. But the amazing thing is that, uh, that, that God took measures to clothe them. And what did he do? He took animal skins and in the process had to kill those animals so that they could be clothed from their vileness and defilement. And we see that picture again and again in Scripture. And it's a beautiful picture to think of, uh, of God clothing us and let's just look at some of the references. Look at Isaiah 61 and verse 10. Isaiah 61 verse 10. <clears throat> I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. 
He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorneth herself with her jewels. What a tremendous contrast. I was once clothed in filthy rags, and now God has clothed me with the garments of salvation. Isn't that beautiful? And, and we, see it, uh, we see that again and again. Remember the story of the prodigal son. Remember when he, was, he finally came to his senses. Where was he? He was working in a pig pen, right? So can you imagine what he smelt like? Maybe his father smelt him before he saw him. I don't know. But he's coming back and he's filthy. And what does the father do? Get out the best robe and clothe him. That's what God does, isn't it? I mean, he, he takes away the filthy garments and he clothes us with garments of salvation. Of course, the beautiful... Uh, Scripture, 2 Corinthians 5.21, I think fits in well with this. 2 Corinthians 5.21, one of my favorite verses. Thinking of what the Lord has done for us in our filthiness, in our vileness. 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, For he has made him, the Lord Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Filthy garments replaced... But not just replaced. I want you to notice this too back in uh, Zechariah 3. He says, Joshua, verse 3, was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. And he answered and spake to those that stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And unto him he said, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with a change of raiment. And I said, let them set a fair mitre upon his head, so that they set a fair mitre upon his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord stood by. So God removes his filthy garments. Then he tells us what he's really speaking about. He said, I've removed thine iniquity from thee. Okay, in other words, it's his sin that's in question here. So his sin is removed, and then it says that he's clothed with garments. And these garments now, they're not just any old garments, but he's got high priestly garments on, including a mitre. Now remember the mitre, that was the headpiece of the high priest garments. And you remember what it said on, there was a gold plate on the front. You know what it said on that gold plate? Holiness unto the Lord. So not only did God cleanse him and save him, but he also put him into priestly service. See, that's the wonderful thing about salvation, isn't it? Um, The Apostle Paul never got over the fact that not only would God save him, but he says, he counted me worthy putting me into the ministry. You know what he was saying? I'm just amazed that God would ever save me. But the fact that he wants me on his team is mind-blowing. That he would want to use someone who killed Christians for a living. And I think for all of us, isn't it a tremendous thing that not only did God save you and cleansed you and put on you garments of salvation, clothed you with the righteousness of God, but he actually wants you to serve him as a priest. Now we recognize that when we meet together as an assembly, that the men have the audible aspect of priesthood. They're the ones that stand and represent the company before God. But every believer, male and female, are priests unto God, aren't they? And every priest 
is to be a worshiper. My wife, she sits next to me at the Lord's Supper and she'll be following what's going along and she'll, she'll maybe think about a hymn and so she'll turn this hymn up and God will exercise some brother to give out that hymn and she'll nudge me and she'll say, I'm there already, you see, I'm, I'm with this. And sometimes in the silence when the male duds are not saying anything, the silent worship of the sisters is probably the only worship that reaches heaven. See, what a privilege. God has saved us. And now he says, you can serve me as a priest. Now, it's interesting how the headpiece is emphasized, this mitre. And it does say holiness unto the Lord. And I want to just say something about this because, see, I believe that a lot of our sin problem starts here in the head. Right? The mind. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And, you know, I hear about all these terrible things that are going on. People that I used to preach with that are no longer involved in ministry because of sin. But, you know, it didn't start with some uh, act of, of, of adultery. It started in the thought life. It started with an unguarded mind that that didn't bring its thoughts into captivity to the obedience of Christ and began to mull over things and think about things and, and entertain things. So that when the situation presented itself, they acted out the fantasies that had been allowed to be in the mind. Can I say to you, young people, there's an old song, a children's song, and the theology is outstanding. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. For the Father up above is looking down in love, so be careful, little eyes, what you see. Now, let me just tell you why. Because we have an amazing database up here. And the stuff that I saw before I was saved, and I wish that I could erase them. If there was just an erase button that I could press and get rid of those images that are stored in my computer up here. But sometimes those images are flashed on the screen of my mind when I'm least expecting it. Sometimes I'll be set at the Lord's Supper and some awful blasphemous thought will come into my mind and it's a terrible thing to have to deal with. I have to, do, I have to bring it into captivity to the obedience of Christ. But I'm saying for young people... You don't have to do that. You can make choices today about what you see and what you think about, which means that 20 years from now, you won't have to deal with it like I have to deal with it. Keep your mind holiness unto the Lord. Right? That's, that's the, because, you see, that's the important thing. That's where it all starts in the mind. And so we want to make sure that we renew our minds. Now, of course, there is, there's help. There's, there, there's weapons that we can use in this conflict. And, uh, uh, and I find that very helpful. And we need to use these weapons, but we need to be aware about keeping our thought life the, the way it ought to be. We also need to keep uh, timekeeping the way it ought to be. And our meeting has just ended. Well, this one, at least this section. And uh, we have a lot more to say about chapter 3 and chapter 4, but Lord willing, we'll do that tomorrow. Let's pray. Our Father, we would ask as we began this meeting with this uh, strong encouragement from Zechariah to the people of his generation 
to turn to God. They were going astray. They were wandering away from the right path, making wrong decisions, wrong choices, wrong friendships, and they were going in the wrong way. Father, we can't help but think that perhaps there's someone here this morning that is like that. Just uh, even since last year, perhaps, in their walk with the Lord, they've lost some of that intimacy because of wrong choices. And yet we're thankful that the message is still relevant today. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to thee. We pray, Father, for such a person that decisions would be made this morning that would have a profound impact on their future life and destiny. We pray for our assemblies, Father, that there would be a willingness to be honest in the presence of God and where repentance is needed, it would happen. Father, we're so thankful that you've said in your word that a broken and a contrite spirit you will not despise. In fact, it almost seems to me that you can't resist that, Father, when, when someone comes in brokenness to thee. So we pray for our assemblies not to be lifted up with pride, but to be humbled in your presence and desire reality in the meetings. We pray, Father, for, for these relationships that are soured over the years to be patched up and mended today. Oh, Father, we'll be so quick to give thee the glory for these things. We're thankful for all that has been done for us through the Lord Jesus, that our filthy garments have been removed, and that we stand in thy presence this morning in garments of salvation. We stand here as believer priests, not only saved, but set in service in holy things. We thank thee for these blessings in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.